gentlemen, welcome to this week's Red Voices podcast. Thank you as ever for joining us for this week's chat, which will be based on a wonderful victory for United of Southampton. Well, it would have been, but United, as they invariably do, have other plans. Rich, how's tricks? Not too bad, not too bad. As frustrated as, as you are, I'm sure, but uh, yeah. I mean, that's probably not ideal. Normally, you're the more frustrated one of the two of us. That that That's part of the fire that makes up the uh, the meat of the Red Voices experience, so that's a bit concerning. I've had a strange conversion this season. I'm kind of far more relaxed about the whole thing than I have been in the past. All right, how's that working out for you? For good or bad? I don't know. It, it's, it's working out pretty well. I, d- I did have a little wobble after the uh, after Southampton game, but I'm back to my... I've regained my zen. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of the issue with that sort of stuff is that immediately after a bad result, what do we do? Straight to Twitter. I mean, that that's not that's not great, is it? Because it keeps you in that mood and attitude of in, intense frustration and anger, especially after a result like that, where we arguably should have won, but didn't really have anyone of the type of performance to do it. So yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it's just partly out of habit and masochism in some way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I think I've managed to withdraw a little bit from Twitter in the last few weeks, just because... It's been mentally draining over the summer, hasn't it? I think mm. the United fan base is, um, hasn't covered itself in glory this summer. And I'm sure I included myself in that as well. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's been a fairly toxic place. So it's been it's been quite good to, to walk away from Twitter about 10 minutes after games and just and just chill let things settle yeah I mean to be fair one thing that we'll come back to yeah one thing that we'll come back to a little (laughs) bit later on will be the fact that our timeline's actually been for the most part not terrible to be around I guess I think the more dangerous Mm -hmm. from people retweeting accounts you know particularly those with a green and yellow in their uh, profile picture but I guess I said that we're basically just padding this intro out until we have to start talking about the Southampton game so let's just dive right in that wasn't great was it well, I, I, I find it more frustrating than than angering because yeah, I'd agree. On the one on the one hand, I've looked at our performances so far this season, and I can see positive elements to them. Um, for the fourth game in a row, we and again stats and things, but for the fourth game in a row, we comfortably won the XG. So, in, in terms of the games as a whole, we are we're creating more than the opposition. We're creating better chances than the opposition. Um, and then we, you know, we had a spell again. It was frustrating that I think Solskjaer seems to set teams up very well, or relatively well. And so the first half was largely dominated by United, with it, with an exception of sort of brief spells at either end. Um, and and we, we we took the lead for a brilliant goal from Daniel James, and then really should have should have put the game to bed again. Not in terms of perhaps in terms of really clear cut chances, but more in the sense that we were we were counter attacking really effectively on on Southampton and just failing in the final third but then again but then after after that we then saw that for a period United kind of lost control of the game a little bit again and, and conceded an equaliser that they shouldn't and didn't need to concede and then obviously didn't close out the game so on the one hand I could see positive elements we, United are better from box to from box to box than they were for the in the last two or three months of last season without question and, and and in one way that that bodes relatively well, but on the other hand, the goals we've conceded this season and the goals we haven't scored have largely been down to profligacy in the final third and and a, and a lack of final ball and and decisiveness and errors in the at the back. And if those two things aren't corrected, then you know results won't get any better. And whilst I don't necessarily think we should. Um, we should put all of last season's results towards the end of the season into 
to the first four games of this season and put them all together and say, oh, three wins in 16, because there's been a lot of changes over the summer, you do have to start worrying as to really whether United can get enough wins and actually put teams away enough to really have anything but a very mediocre season. Mm. Do you know what the weird thing was in the last 10 seconds of your speech there? A guy in the United shirt literally walked straight past my window. Well, there are a few of us about. I guess so, yeah. It was just quite a bit of a surprise, that's all. Um, No, I completely agree. You know, I think that, you know, this evening I saw another wonderful stat with an agenda. Stats are often presented with, of course, which was comparing uh, early form for the last four managers. And obviously Solskjaer's form (laughs) in that period has not been actually fantastic. And again, this is one of those instances where you understand elements of the frustration but again, as you mentioned there, it's not necessarily taking the whole picture into account. And I think that there were elements of Saturday that I found enjoyable. You know, it, Southampton started well and clearly had the aim of pressing United high up the pitch. So what was United's plan? Well, basically smack it long. And as soon as we actually got it past the halfway line, Southampton invariably did not have an answer. And that was encouraging. You know, at times the attack with uh, Matter instead of Lingard actually looked like it could function. It looked quite good. And it looked a little bit more multifaceted I get maybe not multifaceted is not the right term but it looked a little bit more flexible than it has been for the last several weeks and you know I'm not saying that's just purely down to matter I think Daniel James again had another really useful game and the goal was an absolute peach you know he's t- someone who's taken a lot of flack over the opening month of the season and you know his supposed level of quality has been criticized but in terms of a player coming in from the championship, you could not have asked for a more pronounced effect than we've seen from Daniel James so far. Three goals in four games, and all of them have been, you know, maybe the first one was somewhat lucky in terms of the deflection that took off the player before it went past the goalkeeper. But the goal against uh, Wolves, no, sorry, wasn't Wolves, the goals against Palace and against Southampton have both been very, very high quality finishes in difficult areas, right into the top corner. The keeper's had no chance and it's been encouraging to see him grow with confidence. And long may that continue. You know, I, I guess, again, I completely agree. The frustration was as that first half wore on, we didn't take advantage of our supremacy. You know, Southampton, after that goal, seemed to retreat within themselves and it wasn't until the second half that they actually started coming out and putting us under more pressure. And again, the frustration is that Oli didn't really change anything up in that period to try and get us over the line and get us to a commanding two-goal lead. Because at that point, you would suggest giving Southampton's, you know, honest but somewhat limited uh, attacking riches that we probably could have seen that game out without too much of a problem. And, you know, a lot of flack was uh, sent in the way of uh, Lindelof for not stopping Vestergaard from getting that header on. But the greater issue for me was that no one stopped the cross coming in. You know, there was a long, long time between that cross, the corner coming in, and then I believe it was Danzo's cross going onto Vestergaard's head. And that was the more concerning thing that we just didn't basically cut down that opportunity because there was so much time to pick that ball out and make sure it landed on Vestergaard's head that it basically made the challenge somewhat redundant (laughs) at that stage. And, you know, the sending off as well, you know, talk to me about that. I mean, hilarious red card to get at that point from Danzo, considering that Southampton were well in the game at that stage. It was, but the, the frustrating thing for me, you know, I tweeted this at the time, was that Danzo was on a yellow card from about the 20th minute I think and we were playing Pereira on the right who isn't a pacey player he's not going to te- really test the fullback and he was having a particularly bad game anyway and I couldn't comprehend as well as perhaps reinforcing the midfield and pushing Pogba on in, in a way that could have got some more control of the game as, a, as the second half went on Solskjaer didn't take the option of bringing on 
a, a pacey or a tricky right-sided player to actually test <clears throat> test Danzo until later in the game when, when he brought Greenwood on. It, it almost kind of emphasised that point when Danzo was eventually sent off for bringing down McTominay. You know, and, and, and further frustration, United then had a good period of time to pound away at, at 10 men and, and really it kind of highlighted the, the attacking deficiencies that we have and almost made it more frustrating when when we didn't win the game. Mm. I mean, I guess the the frustration is is becoming our catchphrase at the minute so far in this episode and all other episodes. Um, but the substitutions in particular, I mean, Lingard's just been so bang off form at the minute that, you know, two shots from distance, not choosing the passing option when the play was somewhat stretched in the closing stages of that game. Oh gosh, that was in, that was very windy uppy, and then Matic in particular. I mean, sometimes social media activity from players can get absolutely blown out of proportion, right? And sometimes we can get annoyed at very little things. You know, United as a fan base has been particularly terrible for this over the last several years. But the goal of a man like Emmanuel Matic, especially with the way he's been playing over the last eighteen months plus to like a post saying that Solskjaer doesn't know how to get the best out of him and he should be playing him more, considering the performance that he dropped on Saturday afternoon. Ballsy. Ballsy to say the least. Matic was a complete hindrance after he came on. It's just the inability to basically pay with any sort of pace. He looks like the ball is deliberately trying to get away with him. It's like the ball and he are the same poles of magnets and they're repelled from each other. It's just, it's so difficult to watch that man try and control the football because he's, there's just not really much help he can offer that forward line, especially in that sort of circumstance. And I realised that obviously Matic came on prior to the sending off and it was a name perhaps to try and steady the ship and try and push Pogba on. And I still like the idea, obviously, as we all do, of pushing Pogba further up the pitch because that's where you get the best out of him. But bringing the Matic on, especially when we were chasing the game, and especially, well, maybe not when we were chasing the game, when we were trying to steady things up and maybe provoke a chance, but especially when we went down to 10 men, it just was a complete hindrance. It did not help us whatsoever. Yeah, it's another game that kind of leaves leaves us with more questions than answers about, about Solskjaer and about certain players as well because, you know, I've said for the last few weeks... My one big concern about him is his game management and his ability to, to adapt to changes that the opposition make or changes in the game that, that happen. And another frustration was just seeing how ineffective some of our key players were. You know, Pogba was very poor from a deep position. Um, and, you know, we, I get the impression we're never ever going to get anything like the best out of him from that in that role. And Rashford was just really frustrating as a centre-forward again particularly in those last 15 minutes when um, when Dan James was getting a lot of space on the on the, the left-hand side and putting the two or three really, really good crosses into the edge of the six-yard box, which, I dare I say, probably Lukaku would have been attacking, oh, but um, but Marcus Rashford wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just another frustrating game that made you think, look at the end and think, I just don't know any more about this team or whether they can actually be be better or worse. Um, and that's that's the thing that at the moment is it unnerves me because I don't think I've ever felt so unsure of quite how good or bad a team a United team can be. You know, if we were to to continue gathering points at the same rate that we have at the start of the season and <clears throat> the tail end of last season, then you know we're essentially a relegation team. But there's enough players in in, the, in there of a good age who can improve as well, including some of the young players. So th- 
you know, United could either, either become much better or could really, really end up in a, quite a dangerous position at the wrong end of the table. And I think that's the the real concern. I still don't know what this team is. I still don't know if Solskjaer can do the job that he's needed to do or not. I mean, he's clearly signed very well. It's no, no, no coincidence that the three players up for the club uh, August player of the season are, the th- are his three signings. Mm-hmm. And they've all, they've all been very good since they've come in. And I don't think that I have any concerns about his vision and about what he's done off the pitch or where he wants to take the the team in terms of stylistic, uh, in, in stylistically or in terms of personnel, but all of that will the the impact of all of that will be limited, or his his vision will be prevented if he's not if he's not good enough at the actual coaching. That's the real concern for me, and it's another game where I've looked at it and thought, I don't know, I don't know whether he, I don't know whether he can do this or not, and I don't know where we're going to end up and I'm perfectly happy to sit and accept that this season is going to be a step back particularly if if we give lots of opportunities to to the young players because I think some of them really do have the talent to to become very high level Premier League players but it's still it's still very unsettling not knowing essentially if this team can be arse end of the Premier League team over the course of a season or whether it can really pick up and, and push up towards at least towards where it finished last season which I think would be a reasonable achievement given the the, the players we've lost. Um, I guess I guess the fact that I'm talking in those terms tells you what a strange time we're in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know that's three results in a row that you could say that we should have gotten more out of. You know, there's three games. You know, the Wolves game, we were what a better penalty away from winning it potentially. Palace, we never should have lost that game considering the amount of possession we had and. You know the amount of pressure that we exerted on the visiting team, and especially when you get an opportunity at a, you know no suspect Southampton, but a team like Southampton, regardless of that's home or away, you know you you should be going on to win that game given the attacking players that we have, and obviously there are caveats to that, and there are things you have to take into account, especially when the team wasn't necessarily fluent, as it certainly wasn't on Saturday, but you know I think. There is a changing of expectations with United this season. And as you said there, you know, we don't really know how useful or good or how coherent this team can be under Solskjaer. You know, we had that sample size at the beginning of his tenure and the end of last season, which were polar opposites in terms of what he could actually do with this side. And it's still very difficult to know at this stage, four games into the season, what we're actually going to get. You know, one of the things that I I do, well, maybe... Parting is the wrong word, but it gives me some form of confidence. Actually, you know, maybe confidence is the wrong word too. But I look at the way the other teams around us are playing. You know, Chelsea are still, for want of a better term, having difficulties at the moment. Obviously, they've had a lot of change this year. You know, Eden Hazard leaving has been a huge change for them, and they they pushed you to the fore. And you know, they are getting opportunities, and Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham are doing well for it. But at the same time, is that necessarily going to mean that they stay in the upper echelons of the Premier League? Not sure. You know, Spurs might have been Spurs might have got the same amount of points that we have at the moment, which is a big old five. But they've also played Arsenal and City, and City are one of the best two teams in the whole country. So there is that to take into the equation. But you know, in particular, in the North London derby on Sunday, there were elements of that team struggling beyond trying to get the ball up to Harry Kane. And that's becoming a bit of a shackle for them at the moment, which I found quite interesting. You know, I think the nominal 
four below City and Liverpool have all got deficiencies at the minute. We've been speaking about this prior to this episode as well, and I think that remains the case based on these first four games. Obviously, the concern is that a team like Leicester could easily come in and disrupt that at the moment, and that leads nicely into our next game. You know, we will be playing Leicester at Old Trafford after the international break, and that does become a big game. You know, we do need to start winning again. And in particular, with that sort of tie, especially with Leicester doing relatively well at the moment under Brendan Rodgers, United do need to approach it in the right way. You know, hopefully we'll have Luke Shaw slash Anthony Martial back. Two players we won't have available for that fixture, though, Alexis Sanchez and Matteo Darmi, because they have bugged off. Right, Sanchez. Um, fair to say that's the worst transfer you can remember in United history? Yep, I'm trying to think of a worse one. Um I mean, Di no, Maria, 60 my... million quid, that didn't end very well. Mm. Memphis Depay, I guess, wasn't as bad, obviously, considering that he didn't have quite the same reputation as Di Maria or Sanchez, but that didn't end fantastically. Um... At, least, at, least in the, at least in respect to those, we, we essentially made our money back, or most of our money back, whereas you know, Sanchez has just been a... Um, particularly in terms of his wages, but also obviously we, we gave away an asset to get him, and albeit not incredibly good asset, but mm. but an asset all the same. Sanchez in has been a financial of, succubus throughout yeah, the 18 ter- months that yeah, we've had it. him. In terms of pure loss, um, and, and given the fact that we're still essentially paying a portion of his wages as well, and, and that he may even come back and suck us more, <laughs> it, certainly, Sorry. it certainly strikes me as one of the most financially disastrous uh, things Manchester United have ever done mm. and and I think this may apply to Lukaku as well They, you never know but it does sound like the two of them weren't essentially uh, particularly harmonious voices for the dressing room um, it does sound like Sanchez was relatively withdrawn and not particularly part of the group and Lukaku was clearly a pretty pissed off bunny by the time towards the end of last season and, and, and then over the summer not not necessarily without good reason, given that he he was essentially relegated to to back up striker by by Solskjaer. But but it does look as though those two not say well not sales in the case of Sanchez, but those those two exiles um, may have been necessary um, for the sort of the harmony of the of the entire group. If 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 at least Lukaku weakened us considerably in 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 at the top end of the pitch as for Sanchez it really makes absolutely no difference at all you could you could say essentially we've signed James to replace Sanchez and he's already scored more goals than Sanchez did in the entirety of last season so mm-hmm. you know that tells you just what a tiny insignificant loss Sanchez being a long way away is yeah I mean with Sanchez in particular I was talking to a, a mate from work about it who's also United funny saying I'm not sure if it was a mistake to let him go I think we should have kept him and I mean the argument of saying I would rather give opportunities to younger players when you don't necessarily know what the likes of Chong or Gomez or Greenwood could actually bring into this team than give chances to a player like Sanchez when the sample size that we've seen from him has been woefully um, unimpressive (laughs) over the course Mm. of his time at United. You know exactly what you're going to get from Sanchez. You might get a goal every 10 games or so, but for a it, it's much better for us to be giving opportunities to younger players on the whole. You know, I, I think that Chong and Gomez and Greenwood deserve the opportunities. And obviously, in the f- case of the latter, he's already getting those games. And for Chong and Gomez, I'm assuming that's going to happen relatively soon. Yeah, Europa League kicks back up soon. So that'll obviously be a benefit. You know, we, uh, 
guess we could talk a little bit about the group stage a little bit later on. Not that there's a hell of a lot we can say about it, apart from the fact that we're going to Kazakhstan. <laughs> yeah. Good grief, I mean, on Kazakhstan good... on a Thursday night. Love that vibes. It's a good, it's a good draw in, in in the respect that it's a relatively weak draw. If you look at some of the other some of the other groups um, that have that have been drawn, I think Arsenal have got a far more tricky set of teams, and 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 they're we've got three teams that at home at the very least we should be beating and you would imagine we could re- mix up the teams a little bit mm. or even more than a little bit and hopefully still get enough points to come out of those groups and I think that's important because had it been a much harder task or a considerably harder task if we were playing teams like Lille or Valencia I think I think it's I think has Arsenal got Valencia, Lille and um, Grimarish I think Arsenal got much... Eintracht, Standard Liège and Vitoria oh, SC <clears throat> Ah, there you go. Um, that's 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 a much trickier, a much trickier group, um, and and none of those games I don't I don't think are a given for Arsenal at all. Mm. Um, whereas you saw particularly with both Arsenal and Chelsea last year, they they had relatively soft draws at various points and were able to use a lot of their um, their squad and and a lot of the younger players. And I think that that is a really important possibility for them to get game time because you know Greenwood's already getting on the pitch but but guys like guy like Gomez and like Chong and potentially Garner as well maybe even Brandon Williams these 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 are players who are I, I think now ultimately wasted at under 23 level I can't really see what more they can learn playing those games um, and unless you're going to loan them which isn't always ideal then they need to start playing um, and, and particularly given that Gomez um, he's out of contract in the summer, and we desperately need to get him to sign a new one somehow. Um, I think the only way that's going to be achieved is by giving him a decent amount of um, game time because he must he must look at the other guys who who are actually starting for United in in a similar position to him. And particularly Lingard has got a few games, and um, Mass has come in there as well. And he must just be thinking those guys aren't playing well. So you know why am I not getting a chance? And you know he's an incredibly talented boy, so so it's really important that we that we were able to give them games. We've got the Rochdale game coming up as well in, in the League Cup, which is another really handy one for for getting the minutes. So we have we have got the opportunity to to rotate quite a lot in the cups, I think, and that should in theory benefit us in the league by giving us the opportunity to to rest some of our some of our key players so I think the Europa League draws fallen quite well for us yeah I mean talking about key players Matteo Damian <laughs> left <laughs> who for Palmer yeah um, I miss those miss those lamb chops yeah man um, I mean I miss that happy video of him when he was arriving back to his partner's place um, after mm. the Europa League final I think actually done a really good job <laughs> Um, and that one excellent goal, I think he scored past West Brom. I want to say in his first season, cracking no, volley with his left foot. No, it wasn't West Brom, was it? Everton, <clears throat> Palace. It was Palace. Palace. Home beg on your the, pardon. Palace reserves, I, I believe, oh. at home on some awful midweek night when we didn't really care anymore. Anyway, sounds about right. But yeah, it was a, his one, his one wonderful contribution to Manchester United's goal tally in the last few years. Yeah, I mean. I remember back in the, the early days of this podcast, Rich, when our good mm. friend Kev Thomas declared that Matteo Damian had everything in his locker to become one of the best right-backs in Premier League, which was, mm. I mean, at, at that point, I mean, Kev's prone to a bit of hyperbole regardless, God bless him. So, obviously, you take that with a bit of a pinch of salt, but there was 
there were there was definitely a point in that those first couple of weeks of the season where you thought actually we've unearthed a really good right back here and considering the issues that we've had in that position over the years it was actually good to see that Van Hal at the time you thought initially had brought quite well uh no that didn't happen at all I mean obviously there's an element you could say of mismanagement but and I know that a lot of people <clears throat> give uh Damien Stick for what is uh viewed as a lack of what's the word I'm searching for here ambition uh, especially over his time at United in the sense that he's basically spent the last two years out of the side and been trying to get a contract out of United and it's taken uh, roughly 24 months since he's been a regular starter if not far longer for him to actually leave United and head back to Italy but you know as people go I can't really be too critical of him it's just too difficult he's inoffensive he's nice he never got into any trouble at all and yeah just a thoroughly all right chap as far as I'm concerned, he was. He's he's an example of uh, something we've we've seen in the last few years. We've talked about this before that United have become the place where talent kind of goes to die, and um, or just you Darmian, know, get really rich. <laughs> Damian's one. Damian's one who arrived as an Italian international on the up was really talked about in glowing terms by Serie A watchers before he joined, and I think he actually started reasonably well, but was just swallowed up by. Manchester United being post Fergie Manchester United and 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 obviously whilst you know we we don't really know what's happened behind the scenes I'm sure he didn't appreciate United um, triggering the the one year extension in his contract last summer after he already sat on his backside for a year trying to trying to get a move um, so I think in terms of him leaving after two years of doing very little he, certainly the club are as complicit in that as as he was. Um, but 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 far more pertinent, we surely need to talk about the the man, the myth that is Mike Stroke, Chris Smalling. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, it's another one that's gone recently. Mm. Um, I mean, Roma's description of Chris Smalling was hugely interesting, considering that it used several adjectives to describe him in terms of commanding slash presence slash energetic. Neither of which I would have actually used to describe the man himself. I mean, that's that's being overly mean, but still, you know, again, a player that looked like he was seeing far less opportunities under Solskjaer. So I have no issues with him going whatsoever. You know, I think in terms of Smalling, Rocco or Jones, if one of them had to leave this summer, it's much of a muchness as far as I'm concerned. You know, Chris Smalling might give you a bit more of a goal threat and has scored some really great goals for us over the time that he's been at United, in particular two goals in previous Manchester derbies that in particular the one at the Etihad uh, the previous season will hold long in our hearts in terms of what it actually meant. But, you know, another example of a player that we bought with the aim of trying to step up to Vidic and Ferdinand levels, or at least trying to help compensate for their loss as they got a little bit older, that just wasn't up to offering a consistency that was really going to be good enough for United standard. You know, the, this obviously this completely mythical United standard that we speak about so much. But yeah, it, it's it's weird, I guess, as an aside to see so many uh, Serie A teams picking up uh, Premier League uh, mishaps slash rejects at the moment. I don't think he'll do badly there. I think perhaps the slower speed of games will actually help him. And obviously he's a... But now again, another player that, you know, people have been talking in particular. And as you mentioned, you know, there's been lots of talk about Solskjaer as a manager and in-game management. And that is very much up for debate, even though obviously within the first couple of months, we all thought he was doing excellently in that way. In terms of the actual squad management, 
in terms of the players he's brought in, he's done a great job. I think all three signings have so far been pretty great. And I think in terms of the players that he's let go, the only one I would have a major question mark over would be Herrera, purely because we didn't replace him. I think in terms of the other players that he's let go, he's been completely justified in that decision, whether that's been on a permanent deal or out on loan. And Chris Smalling is another example of a player at United who could do a job for us, but is not necessarily going to be able to take us up to a quote-unquote higher level than we currently are. So yeah, no arguments with that one whatsoever. I think Lukaku's the one. I think Lukaku's the one that's that's dangerous, not because he is particularly suited to what Oli's trying to do or tried to do, but you saw on you saw at the weekend against Southampton what what we miss in terms of a a, a predatory striker or a six yard box striker. And I think Holly said last week that he he had wanted to bring in another centre forward to replace Lukaku, but it just didn't work out. That's a big a big concern for me. But in terms of the rest, like you said, I would I would have Rocco fighting into the sea before I'd get rid of Chris Smalling. But um, I think Smalling's big issue for Solskjaer is that he he's not good enough on the ball. Mm. And you've seen you've seen since um, Maguire's come in. The degree to which Maguire steps out um, of the back four, really almost into midfield, and I noticed particularly against Wolves that he was he was really stepping up twenty thirty yards sometimes with the ball, and McTominay was falling back into the into the space behind him to to cover, and that's something that Smalling just can't do. Mm. He, he's not <clears throat> he's not a technician, is he? He's, he's a he was always you know relatively solid seven out of ten centre back, but never never more, but occasionally you know sometimes less. And so, I mean, ultimately, if, if he's going to be fourth choice at centre-back at United at best, you can understand why he wants to move on. And given his wages and whatnot, you can understand why United did. But it's interesting that, that Serie A have kind of been the main, been the side that have taken advantage most of the of the English clubs absolutely stupidly finishing their transfer window early. <laughs> just, they've just essentially waited for the, the Premier League clubs to sign on their players and then just picked off the ones they don't that think are on the periphery that they might they think might might help them or improve them. It's good that this week there's been some suggestion that that will be remedied next year and we'll be back to operating on the level playing field because when your when your acquisition team consists of Edward Ward and Matthew Judge, you need every <laughs> you need every uh, every benefit you can get, don't you? Yeah, you need all the help you can get for sure. And yeah. you know, obviously Mkhitaryan also going off to Roma to join Smalling, which is a nice little reunion for them. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to stick with Serie A uh, to move on to our next point before we get on to Twitter questions, primarily because it's been in the last week that we've seen Cagliari fans for the second time in a year in the news for uh, racially abusing black players with monkey chants. And this week it was Lukaku who took the brunt of it despite scoring a penalty. And, you know, whilst it's always encouraging to see uh, players like Scrinia, for instance, who actually motioned to, you know, finger on the lips in response to the actual chance itself, the reactions have again been very telling in terms of how football actually is dealing with these sort of instances. And the ridiculous statement put out by that Inter fan group saying, mm. you know, you misunderstand this. This is not racism, you know, which was actually I'll get the quote up now because it's absolutely ridiculous. We're really sorry you thought what happened in Cagliari was racist. You have to understand that Italy is not like many other no- northern European countries where racism is a real problem. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Lads. Let's, Thanks for let's that. Just, let's, you let's sold just it, have you? Point. Let's just say at this point that that Italy currently have a really very unpleasant uh, right wing government. <laughs> well, yeah, same. 
Well, yes, but I mean even more so. Um, yeah, true. So the thing that comes into play in particular here, I guess you could you could point to any single incident and say this has really been the catalyst for what we're seeing, especially at the moment. You know, it it, it all feeds into what we've been seeing, especially since that second game uh, against Wolves when Pogba did miss that penalty and Gary Neville's completely wild and over the top and ill-thought-out tirade against him just for having the temerity to take a penalty that he'd actually earned and the way that, you know, there's def- there's certainly a link between that and some of the racism that Pogba received and Rashford received pelters as well, racist abuse for missing the penalty against Palace and it's an inc- I mean, there's a whole big chat to be had here, you know, first and foremost, it's obviously something that could you honestly say that two white men are incredibly well equipped to talk about because this is not something it's not something that we ourselves have suffered but you know we do have a platform though limited to discuss things related to Manchester United and football and Mm. this is why this is something that I really wanted to look at and focus on and get your thoughts on because in particular when you're seeing things like the completely ridiculous statement that we mentioned there from the Inter fans trying to play down the monkey chance aimed towards Lukaku and you see United fans um, tweeting the likes of Pogba and Rashford racist abuse if they muck up or uh, miss a penalty or whatever and you know full-time devils actually brought out an interesting point about this is that when we see statements from fan clubs or fans condemning racist abusers in their fan base there's the instant chat of well these aren't real you know liverpool fans or real city fans or real arsenal fans whatever but they just are. as an example they are. yeah yeah you can't divorce them from united fandom or the fan base just because they're racist they are a part of it and i think that as a fan base and in particular you know i'm not expecting every single person that follows us and listens to us to hold the exact same political views as us i don't think considering that we do have a nice spread of people from all around the world that's going to be possible but i think in particular what i'm trying to do in terms of what we do with the account and how we interact with people and how we respond to instances of abuse is call it out and make sure it is noticed make sure people are aware of you know these instances and we respond to it in a way that attempts to shine a light on it and paint it as the negatives that that it is because to me saying nothing is not going to help anything and i think that in particular it's there's maybe not a sense of responsibility but i do feel it's important that we do call this shit out for what it is regardless of how much influence we can have i think that is a really key part of what i want to try and do with the twitter account and the podcast going forward one of the difficult things to address is that it's easy to to point and criticize point out and criticize people who directly say incredibly racist things at other people on 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 social media or a guy in a stadium who's making a monkey noise or whatever else but then but then you've also got the the issue which again has raised its ugly head this week where there's been a lot of discussion around Graham Souness's attitude towards Moises Keane at Everton and his conclusion that Juve probably sold him because he was a disruptive influence or he had an attitude Uh. problem or something whereas the reality is a lot different in terms of his contract was running down. Juve wanted to recoup money. You know, there, there were lots of footballing reasons why they sold him. And <clears throat> Soonis made the immediate assumption that 
there must be an issue with his character. And this is something that happens far more to to black players than it does to white. And it was interesting that during the, I think it, may have, I think it was probably on the same day, during the, or, before the Spurs-Arsenal game, he then started talking about um, Ericsson, who we know is he's running his contract down and and has wanted to leave in the in the transfer window and and soon is surmising that 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 Ericsson will be is no bother in the changing room at all and I'm sure he wouldn't have you know caused any any degree of upheaval despite the fact that Pochettino has been clearly pissed off by a lot of upheaval in the changing room because of players leaving players wanting to leave and whatever else and I'm sure if you if you asked him. Graham Soonis would deny until he's blue in the face. Sorry, yes, that he's <clears throat> that he's not a racist, and I'm and I'm absolutely sure that he believes he's not a racist. And it's for it's for individuals to decide how they feel about that sort of thing. But but he's also been a very strong, repeated, and excessive critic of Paul Pogba. Mm. And who, over the to last... be fair to Paul Pogba, now regardless of what you think of him, when you start really digging into reports during the summer in terms of his actual presence there's not really one that I read through that entire window that was really negative about his actual attitude and application throughout the entirety of the transfer window and we all knew he wanted to go to Real Madrid all intents and purposes he got on with it and knuckled down yeah and I, th- I think the point the point about the point the point about Sunis is that we can all definitely accept that Paul Pogba did not play well enough in many games last year and that his form is frustratingly up and down, and you know he had a particularly particularly poor game, I thought, on Saturday against Southampton. But the Sunis's criticisms were in very large part about his character, and it became almost a, an example of Chinese whispers, where you had again get Gary Neville very disparaging about Paul Pogba's character and influence in the dressing room, and how he's supposedly a, a bad influence on others. We had we had a lot of people questioning Marcus Rashford's attitude last year at times when he wasn't in great form and it's kind the kind of thing doesn't happen our white players you have to wonder whether there's some degree of subconscious it's not even not even bias it's just a, a subconscious feeling that that seeing looking at a black player and, and and somewhere in your mind thinking that they're they're likely to have issues with their attitude or that they're like more likely to be disruptive influences, and it's very difficult because I'm not <clears throat> sitting here and telling you Gary Neville's racist or or whatever else. But a large proportion of the racism in society is subconscious. It's it's <clears throat> it's not calling people names. It's it's discrimination. It's it's favouring. You know, the, 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 there have been repeated studies which show that <clears throat> if two candidates for with it, with identical qualifications apply for the same job the the white candidate is f- significantly more likely to get the job than the black candidate even with all the candidate with a, with a, a name which sounds as if it may be non-anglo-saxon that's the where we are that's the problem that we're facing so we can point and shout at people who are calling black people awful racist things on twitter but that's only addressing a very very small part of it and it was interesting to Again, I think it muddied the waters further listening to John Barnes on Talk Sport yesterday. And Barnes is usually very, very good on this. And he's absolutely right that, that racism is ingrained in society in those terms, not just direct terms, but also subconscious terms. But it was really disquieting to hear him 
lay into Jaden Sancho yesterday, who had said that that racist abuse within football threatened to lead him to fall out of love with the game. For Barnes to then come out and say, essentially to minimise um, and belittle Sancho's feelings, essentially saying you get paid tons of money, you do a great job, you don't know, you you have no idea what racial discrimination is. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when you've got somebody as visible as that who is usually so articulate on 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 this subject, muddy the waters in that way again you wonder how on earth we can ever actually make any ground on this. We, even if we make positive steps in one society, you've seen from what the Inter fans have said this week in, the, in Italy, that there is a whole different attitude to the acceptability of using racial discrimination as a tool for other things in another, in another society. So how, you know, how on earth do we address it when you've got so many different voices, so many different types of discrimination... And so many different societies that have shaped people into being how they are. And I think it, it all needs to come back to the only thing you can do is make sure that the forums where those discrimination is passed on clamp down on it. You know, whether that's social media, whether that's footballing authorities in terms of inside stadia or clubs or whatever. That's the only thing we can do because we can't, I don't think we can change societies as as individuals change on that level even at a micro level comes from people just standing up and shining a light on instances like that and yeah sharing them in particular if we do see a, a united player being abused racially um in those sort of contexts just be just by pure virtue of having missed a penalty for example then again calling it out you know it, it it's a simple thing to do and again you know we've, we've talked about the impact that social media can have in terms of its limited uh, effect on the glazers out campaign i think the rules are a little bit different when it comes to something like this purely because it's important to at least do something and i think mm. when it comes to a, a total change in society yes it's difficult for small acts like this to inform part of a wider change but i think it's important to at least start calling well maybe not start but call it out on a higher level you know i think if it's the case of you know in particular gary neville is a great uh, example of this in particular because he seems to have taken umbrage with the fact that people have been having a go at him for his critique of paul pogba and in particular because he doesn't view himself as a racist he doesn't necessarily feel that what he's done is wrong and again i don't think Gary Neville is a racist. I just think that his the language and the way that things are framed in particular really does not help the racial discussion and motivations for people who might want to commit racism. It emboldens them. And I think in particular, we do have to be more careful in the way that we discuss these sort of things and the levels of discourse that we're actually having. And it at least is a start to start calling the stuff out more and start taking greater note of it and start critiquing the discussions surrounding this sort of stuff more often. And again, you know, in terms of a a more generalised change in society, why not do it more? Why not at least try and do this in football? Because football is a mirror of what's happening in society. And obviously it's going to be difficult to change everyone's mind and we're not going to eradicate racism on our own. But at least it's important in our circle, within our field, 
in our area to take more of a stand on it because sitting on the sidelines grumbling about it I, I just can't do it anymore in particular you know and I'm sick of seeing responses like that and in particular whenever United post a tweet relating to the LBGTQ community seeing our yeah. oh, Gaychester United oh I'm going to unfollow the club now this is ridiculous it's Adam and Eve not Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve all oh, that's ridiculous bollocks I think it's important to show at least examples of support and solidarity with communities, especially within football, because as we know, it is, sorry, let me rephrase that, especially within football, because it needs to be a game that is open to everyone and as free of discrimination as it can possibly be. Obviously, that's a difficult thing to do, but I think it's important that at least there is a contribution from our side that works towards that. Is that fair enough? Is that a good way to round it off? Yeah, it is. I, I, I'd say is that the football's in in a position that perhaps other walks of life aren't. In that it is, it is, it does have the power, <clears throat> certainly within within football stadia and on on mediums like social media, there is the power to to punish. You can try and change societal views, but that's a very long term project. But <clears throat> and I think it's generally pretty good inside Premier League grounds. I, th- I think I think people who are being racist will ne- not will largely get a pretty negative response from those around them and we do um the clubs do and the the, the premier league and the fa whatever they they do punish people who are as as well as them being um as well as them being charged with an offence by the police but if in italy it's pretty clear that this has been happening for a long time and that the the italian football federation and the italian police have really no great interest in doing anything about it um, and that's the frustration. And I think the same applies to something like social media, where you know Twitter keep giving nice sound bites out and saying we're taking this really seriously, but then they come out with initiatives whereby they're going to employ people to watch the Twitter feeds of the top fifty footballers in the world as if their experience of racism is more important than the rest of the footballers. Mm. It's an incredibly complex subject, but football does have the power to do something about it in 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 inside their own arena. Yeah, I mean, I hope we've treated it with appropriate care because it is not an easy discussion to have but you know we spend what 40 50 minutes every sort of 10 days or so talking about united so i think there's space for something as important of this to be given the time and attention and care that it deserves anyway i hope we've done the conversation justice but if we haven't and you watch to discuss this further then you guys all know our handles which i'll repeat at the end of the episode Anyway, finish off something a bit lighter. Twitter questions. Andrew Dayton, my question is, is Ole on a slippery slope yet? Um, I think he was on a slippery slope when he got the job. Uh, I've said Ole will be the first boss fired this season. I say I regret that, to be honest. He's a good guy and a club legend, but just don't think he's got that top manager instinct. I don't think he'll be the first one to go. I think if, if Watford don't pick up very quickly, um, the, the manager there will go. Um, you forgot his name, but... didn't you? I have forgotten his name. Is it still is it still Javi Garcia or am I? Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. As far yeah. as I'm aware, yeah, um, yeah that's pretty poor. It's um, good that you came to you know football expert Ewan on this. I know. I think it would be. I think it would have to be very bad for Solskjaer to get the get the the boot because I I do think there's a, an acceptance at United that we need needed to press the hard reset. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's a line where where he would go. Sure. All right. Uh, Adam Salmon, why are we paying? Sorry, Salmon, why are we paying four two three one? Because that means we get lots of attackers into the game, is my guess. Uh, Miles Bailey, why do our forwards find it so hard to make runs into the box? Uh, now, this is an interesting one, and you mentioned and several 
decent crosses came into the six-yard box in the closing stages against Southampton, and Rashford was nowhere near pretty much any of them. That's something that Martial seems to certainly have been told to do more, which is why he got his goal against uh, Chelsea on the opening weekend. I guess Rashford also needs to develop that sort of scruffy goal instinct too, because mm. often his goals tend to be latching on to excellent balls and then absolutely burying them. That's where he's at his absolute best. But uh, a scruffy goal in particular in those sort of circumstances, I don't think we'd turn them up. You know, Lukaku was excellent at scoring that type of goal itself. So that'd be good to see in a bit more abundance in the coming season because in particular it looks like especially when we're playing teams who do play in that low block with everyone behind the ball we're going to have to start scoring more ugly goals uh, Dipak, uh, do you think it's time OGS thought about dropping Rashford, which is uh, instantly linking in with what I've just been talking about he doesn't seem ready to lead the line nor does he look as good as James on the left go on Rich, dissect that for me I would say that because we don't have any other um, any other worthwhile option on the right, I would make. I would have Marshall Rashford and James as my front three. Even if you you say to James and and Rashford, you have to you know start on opposite wings and you you switch every so often and and mix it up like that. Because you know if we if we had a a decent level high high level right winger, I'd say yeah fine. You know give give James a go and and give Rashford a break. But we don't. So I think you've got if we're going to be playing a, a counter-attacking game, which we essentially we are most of the time, then you need a front three that's quick and that's that's skillful, and and I think that Rashford needs to be part of that. Sure. All right. Uh, at Jacks three six five, who will last longer, Oli or Boris? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, on the evidence of the last twenty four hours, uh, Oli by a whisker, I reckon. Mm, it's not looking good for it's, well. No, I was going to say it's not looking good for either. It is it, it's uh, both of both of them are in the their, their futures are in the balance. Okay, say. yeah. It, it, all right. Well, let, let, let's get political. Who do you think has got the best chance of lasting out of the two of them? I, I I don't know because whilst Johnson looks like he's he's slowly desiccating inside with every every it's like a, being done in by a thousand cuts. He's also the sort of worm who will prove very very difficult to flush i think it wouldn't surprise me if he lasted longer than ollie uh at ollie ollie united speaking of which can this all be solved by turning the club off and on again isn't that basically what we're doing to a degree i guess so maybe our roots is just taking a little bit of time to boot back up <laughs> it could be yeah i mean you know it's going to be a we, we have done that we've thrown we've thrown a lot of the old out and brought in some of the new but not anything like as much of the new as we need so mm. we have essentially a, to a large degree hit the reset button and, and just hoped that it'll work when he turns back on again yeah Dave's also got another question the De Gea situation we all thought he was signing recently but still no movement fair point supposedly wants 350k a week but at the moment he's costing us games like the end of last season what to do sell him in Jan cough up let him go free I'm not I wouldn't be super fussed if he went in the summer <clears throat> I think that money can be put to better use and he's not playing he he's not the exceptional way above average goalkeeper that we had for four or five years. Mm. Um so it's very it's it's difficult at the moment to justify painting three hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week. Yeah, I mean I don't unfortunately I don't disagree with that and I would love to because it would mean that we'd have a world class goalkeeper on our hands. But as you mentioned uh, not long ago, I think on the last episode we did, you'd have to question the motivation of an absolutely world-class goalkeeper, one of the best on the planet, staying with United, considering that we are in what can be best described as a melee. 
Uh, Tariq Amir with an interesting one. If you could add a Looney Tunes character to the United squad, who would you pick? I would opt for Tasmanian Devil, as we could do with his dynamism in midfield. Discipline could be a problem, though. <laughs> I think we'd probably be Wiley Cote, always chasing something we're never, ever, ever going to catch. I mean, Elmer Fudd would be quite appropriate, considering that he's very good at shooting his gun, but never actually hits anything. I think that's... Well, that's, that's, that's Mark and Rashford in, in cartoon form. Oh, oh, that was mean. Sorry. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, that James boy has also got up an ultimate question for us. Why aren't the media talking about Poch's worst form? Uh, well, that's because Spurs have played Arsenal and City so far this season, despite the fact they were not good against Newcastle or Villa, and because we're a bigger team than Spurs. So there's that. Uh, Stephen Downton has got the best question of the week. Are you ready for this one? Go on and hit me. If you had to fight either 10 miniature Marcus Rojos or a giant Juan Mata, which one would you fight and why? I'd fight the giant one matter because I just I don't think he'd have it within him to even strike a blow against another human being. Whereas Rocco, Rocco would basically just these little Roccos would like latch on to your ankles with their teeth and rip your rip your flesh away, wouldn't they? Like piranhas, like little Argentinian piranhas. I mean, yeah, I'd be worried about one tiny Marcus Rocco because that'd be savage. We've seen what that lad can do without getting sent off. Mm. So yeah, I'd really rather not um, go down that avenue if that's quite all right with you. So yeah, one massive Juan Mata, and I'd just maybe show him a blog to calm him down, and then mm. you know admit that I'm going to commit to paying 1% of my wages to come and go, and I'm sure that'd do the trick. Yeah. That's <laughs> a, only, only a very small amount anyway. <laughs> that's very true. I mean, it won't be that much, but that's, that's not the point. It's about getting together in the spirit of football and doing stuff. Speaking of football, I'm going to go watch them at the weekend, Rich. It's the start of the season for the women's team against uh, Manchester City at the Etihad. It's, I'm taking my daughters to their very first game. So uh, that'll be an interesting one. Um, you know, it's been a, a really good summer for United in terms of recruitment, despite the fact that we lost Alex Greenwood to uh, Lyon earlier on this uh, last month, I believe it was. So yeah, I'm really interested to see how Stoney's side actually pick, well, maybe not pick themselves up is the right word, but they've really got to quit themselves well for this upcoming Super League season. You know, it is going to be a big step up from where we were last year in the Women's Championship, but obviously a lot of these players are, you know, Super League standard or better. So yeah, I think it's mm. going to be a really interesting season for the team. I think they're starting off against the, the most difficult opposition they could probably face at this point, aren't they? Away from um, home. <clears throat> Away from home, well, it does. It does seem, uh, you know, I wouldn't profess to, to know many female footballers from Adam, and that's something I need to rectify. But um, it does seem like we've recruited relatively from, from a relatively high talent pool this this summer, two or three internationals. So you would hope that we'd be able to be relatively competitive in at least kind of in the the middle of the of the Super League. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be interesting. I, uh, we we talked a long time, didn't we, about United. Um, finally getting their act together and launching a women's team and it's nice that they've now got one in the top flight of English football mm. but while you're there while you're there I'll be I'll be watching England for the for Wembley for the first time in a decade or something Ugh. and strangely enough I, I've actually been asked to take women for the for their first game so it wasn't even my idea women you know or just random women? <laughs> no, no yeah just <laughs> what I'm in the street no 
<laughs> the women of the house requested oh good right yeah uh, it's just so, the way so you said I've been asked to take women yeah. like who's asked you to do this very weird and somewhat oblique quest Richard <laughs> the very women in question I see okay well you, yeah England have yeah. got Bulgaria and Kosovo in their next uh, qualifying fixtures and Wales are going to be finishing off with Azerbaijan and Belarus so hopefully Gareth Bale can uh, return to form to some degree and I uh, Dan James will tear them apart again. I mean, that'd be that's nice. The, the I'm looking forward now. to watching Dan James and Gareth Bay on the same team. Should be a laugh. Mm. Anyway, yeah. mate, before that happens, we've got to go and head off and live our lives for about two weeks and before United yeah. play Leicester. So, quick score prediction for that, and then we'll round off. Uh, one all. One all. Yeah, that's about right. I'm going to go with two on United because I'm feeling positive, partially because right. I haven't watched United in four days. So, we'll see how that pans out. Rich, thanks for your company, as always. A pleasure. Cheers, man. Guys, thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. And don't forget, if you have, you can always let us know on any sort of social media you choose. You can find Rich at, at Rich Red Voices on Twitter. You can find me at, at you and Lennox and the pod at Red Voices MUFC. And should you want to listen to the pod and anything else other than you're currently listening to, don't forget you can get us on Stitcher, on Spotify, and SoundCloud, on the Apple Podcast app. And our blog is always available at redvoices.net. Have yourselves a superb international break, and we will be back after Leicester's uh, humbling of United at Ultra. Traffic. Take care, guys. Bye.